Hey, right now is the perfect time to start planning your destination wedding or your honeymoon. My name is Susan Green and I'm at Susan's Travel Services and I'm available to you with my team for free to help you with all the planning and details of your dream honeymoon or destination wedding. A lot of couples come to us and say they're worried about working with a travel agent is gonna be one more expense to pay and that's simply not true. In fact, working with us should save you time, money, and we wanna make sure that that trip is the best trip yet. We have over 25 years in the industry and we specialize in travel around the world. Let us help you find the best deals, all-inclusive resorts, Mexico, Caribbean, exotic cruises, or how about those overwater bungalows in the Maldives and Bora Bora. Don't get overwhelmed with the millions of places and opinions online. Get some free help and rely on professional experience to make sure you get exactly what you're looking for with your dream vacation or destination wedding. And hey, have I mentioned again that we're free? Email us at susan at susan's travel services and tell us that you heard us on this awesome podcast and we're going to give you $50 off your final payment. What's even better? You tell a friend to contact us and they give us your referral. We'll give you another $50 off your trip. Guess what? If you're doing a destination wedding and you tell someone else, we'll give you $250 off your destination wedding. See, we want to make it easy for you and we want to work with you. We've been in the business a long time. We're really excited about your destination wedding, honeymoon, and getting to know you as a client. Have an awesome day. Hey, this is Susan Green. Howdy, everybody. This is Coulter Fleming. And welcome to the Backstage Travel Podcast. Okay, I have a question for you, Coulter. What is something that you've tried but you would never do again? Um, probably skydiving. You've skydived? No way. Yeah, I'm not sure if I would do it again, though. I mean, it was fine, except... Did you shit a brick when you were up there? That's got to be the scariest part, right? When you get up there and you're like... And now we go. Well, what's funny is you watch a video, right? You, or you sign a waiver, you watch a video, you pay your money. And then you do like a couple practice rounds. And the whole time the coach is like, all right, on three, we're going to jump, you know? So you, you practice putting on your thing and you go, okay, one, two, three. And then you, you know, sort of jump, right? But what happens is you get up there and you've got your, jump master on your back. Right. And it's like his hundredth jump of the day. Right. This is like, this is like breathing for him. And he, and he says to me, okay, so remember on three, we're going to go. And I'm like, I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. So you're up, I think, I think it was 15,000 feet. So you're up, oh, he's behind you. So you swing your feet over, you know, the edge and you're sort of like, oh my God, I'm about to leave this, this little plane. Yeah, that was dumb. Yeah, that was dumb. This was a bad decision. You know, did the exactly. did the thirty minute video, the safety training, all that stuff. Gone. Yeah, whatever. My Gone. dad is like calling me, like, "What are you doing? Like, why would you do this?" So he goes, "Okay, ready? One, two. Then he pushes you. Oh, of course, because you're not going to jump. Because on three, people would just go, "Oh, wait, I've decided against this." Right. And he just throws you out, and you start tumbling. And then you remember, you know, how to open your arms and the pack opens and all that. Before the pack opens, was it cool though? We're like free falling. Did you feel like you were free falling? Yeah. So this was in Florida, Cape, Cape Canaveral, I think right near the, um, is it the Kennedy Space Center? It is. They actually had a shuttle up that day. No way. Oh, that's so so cool. You're sort of going over the, I guess the Everglades or whatever it is. Houston, I have a problem. (laughs) I mean, 
it's it's spectacular. Except when we the reason I wouldn't do it again is that when we got close, yeah, to landing, the wind picked up, and we're trying to land like not in the water. No, I mean sort of like on this airport runway. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we didn't we didn't land well. Like the wind picked up and it sort of like drug us and then we landed and then it drug us some more. And then we went up again and then hit down again. And it, it wasn't a spectacular landing. I mean, we sort of ended up like rolling through a field together. And he's like, I do this all the time. You're good. (laughs) 10, 10 minutes later, he was on the next flight. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. That's awesome. What about you? Um, what have I done that I wouldn't have kids? Just kidding. (laughs) Well, so you were texting me beforehand and you, you wanted to talk a little bit about your goal. So did you have like a goal in mind that you wanted to bring up today? Did I really say that? Yeah, we were, we were talking about, <laughs> we were, you were talking about goals. Like, were you, were you, uh, were, was there something on your mind? Yes, I'd like to lose a hundred pounds by uh, Thanksgiving. Can you help me? I, that, that, that would take <laughs> some special, some special stuff. Um, <laughs> no, I, did I say goals? I think what I wanted to do is I wanted to make sure that we figured out how to get this stupid microphone to work so I don't sound like I'm screaming over you. Now, tell me, you are going with your family to a place that is very special to you. Can you tell us why the place that you're going to next week is so special? Uh, Yeah. So Tori's family for, I guess, is it four generations maybe? I guess it's three three or four generations has gone to this mountain town called Idlewild for Thanksgiving. And her grandfather has a, a cabin up there, but they've sort of outgrown it a little bit. And so we've rent, we've rented like our own little cabins. Um, and last year, this is where we got engaged. Um, so yeah, so, you know, I, I want to say it's like 52 or 53 years that they've been doing Thanksgiving up there. And in spite of, uh, you know, the warnings to not get together for the holidays, uh, <laughs> yes. we're doing it anyway. <laughs> So are you going to give uh, Tori a big diamond ring this year too? I'm hoping, right? Uh, no, we, we just, we just got, <laughs> we just got her uh, wedding ring, which is different than an engagement ring. We got oh. that. So she's ready for uh, next month. We're, we're exactly one month away now. Congratulations. Uh, That's exciting. Yeah. Now we have no idea what we're doing because California <laughs> is under all sorts of new rules and policies yeah. and procedures. Yeah. And so who knows what the wedding day is going to look like at this point, but. Uh, welcome to the Backstage Travel Podcast. I'm Susan Green. Hi, everybody. This is Coulter Fleming. Thanks for joining. Okay, so we have this awesome guest. His name is Carlos. I met him, I think it was about two and a half years ago. We were at a travel conference, and this is what's so funny. So we're at the end of this thing. It's like this uh, totally cool museum that's all Packards. And I'm going through it because my dad collects old Packards. And we're at the very end of it. Wait, wait, pack. Packers like the football team or like God no, I'm a Bears fan. Oh, I know you kill me. No cars, cars. Okay, got it. AC. I don't even know how you spell it. I can't spell. So um, we're at the end of it. Where was this museum? It's like Fort Lauderdale, Miami. For, okay, like so you're in Florida. Yeah, we're in Florida. Two years ago, and you had to do like this whole game, like you know, which of course I wanted to win. Like you had to go get like ask questions and get things on it. And we're at the very end. We're getting on the bus, and he's sitting at a table. We're literally like the two last people. And I walk over to him. I'm like, hey, what do you do? And he tells me his job. And I don't even know how this started, Carlos. I have no idea. But somehow I go, well, I really like plane crashes. And most people go, holy shit, that's morbid. And he goes, oh, my God, so do I. Friendship began. We hung out for the rest of the time. The entire time I got to hear his whole story. We've become fast friends. We chat all the time on text. So absolutely love this guy. 
Carlos is going to come on, share his history and also his, what he's doing currently. Although he is kind of retired, but he is doing other jobs. So Carlos, we are welcome you to our podcast. I thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Is that how you remember us meeting? That is, uh, you have a very, very good memory because it's (laughs) exactly how we met. And uh, I think the key part of your story was the fact that you and I were the last ones to get on the bus. Shocking. Because it was a great amount of drink and food. And we wanted to be the yes. last ones on the bus to make sure we got the yes. last bite and drink. Yes, we did. We sat there for a long time. I know it was just kind of unique. And we're like, I'm like, oh, he's my people. And then, you know, I, I asked him like, what do you do? And your backstory was you worked for the FBI. Exactly. Which I found so hard to believe because I don't mean that in a bad way, but I was like, you are funny. You are loud. You were like, yeah, I work for the FBI. I'm like, no way. I totally didn't believe you at first. And tell me, I remember the story, but tell me how you got into the FBI because it's so unique. Well, I, um, I was a graduate student at UC Davis doing my master's in Spanish literature. And for those of you, I'm, I'm originally from Southern California, so I'm a Santa Barbara born and raised boy. But I went to graduate school in Northern California and I was getting my graduate degree. And the spring of my first year, I, um, I, you know, Davis has these double decker buses like in London that take you around to your oh, apartments and campus and everything. So I missed, I missed mine. So I had 30 minutes to kill and Davis is hot. It's not like Santa Barbara. So I was looking for a place that had air conditioning <laughs> and I had my backpack. So I turned and I decided to walk into the MU because it was the closest place to the bus stop. And I walked up to the MU with my backpack. And as I opened the doors, I realized that they were having an enormous, gigantic job fair. Oh, and yeah. there were individuals in cubicle, I mean, in, in like little pods and areas and, you know, you know, with representing every local federal and state agency you can possibly imagine. So I'm, you know, I'm like, look, this is air conditioning. This is where I want to be. <laughs> exactly. I had my back. Seems I like trolled. a good place. Yeah. And I trolled, I went right, I went left and I literally bumped into the FBI table and um, these three imposing FBI agents from Sacramento with their dark suits uh, said, oh my God, are you interested in the FBI? They were bored because they didn't get a lot of activity. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't know anything about the FBI. My father's a professor at UC Santa Barbara. I'm here getting a master's in Spanish literature. I, I really don't. They said, well, you know yeah, I'm what? I'm perfect. I'm perfect. <laughs> oh, exactly. This is how the government works, right? <laughs> so they asked, they said, do you have a second for three questions? I said, go ahead. I've got exactly right now uh, 20 minutes. And they said, okay, three questions. Are you a U.S. citizen? I said, I'm from Santa Barbara. Do you speak a foreign language? I told them Spanish was my first language because my parents were from Spain originally. They said, great. And then they, I'm aging myself now with the third one. They said, have you ever been arrested for drunk driving? And I said, no, never. I've never gotten a DUI. They said, great, fill this out. So I, I put my name down. I answered those three questions. I filled out a little short form. And that was the beginning of it. And wow. I, began, I began taking tests in Sacramento, Spanish tests, and then regular tests. And then that turned into an enormous background that took a year. So um, when I graduated from Davis with my master's the year after, I went right to the FBI Academy at the ripe age of 25. Where was that? Uh, Quantico, Virginia. Okay. Oh, oh, yeah. You shot a gun? Uh, I had never shot a gun. I had never held a gun. I had never seen a gun. So the first time you do that, we were like, I am so cool. I got the, I got the, the jack. I have to say those jackets look like they were bought at Walmart. Yes. Those are the, those are the jackets that you use <laughs> just to shoot. Yes. The windbreaker. You're referring oh. to the windbreaker. Yes. 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 yes, that said FBI. I was an FBI agent one year for Chris for uh, Halloween. And I was like, 
They're so cheap looking. Yes, they, things have gotten better. But when I went, this was, mind you, 30 years ago. On a government budget. I mean, they got to watch their spending, Susan. <laughs> they, exactly right. I know, but. But no, I had never held a gun. Um, and we went there for four months of training and they did a nice job of, of training us how to, you know, carry a weapon and, and uh, some other, you know, legal and how to, you know, investigate people and do surveillances and different things. But it was, it was an interesting four months. So, so where did you do your undergrad then? Did you go to UC Santa Barbara? Yeah, I went to UC Santa Barbara and got my undergrad in Spanish also. Unbelievable. Yes. Me llamo Susana. That's about as much as I know. And estoy cansado. I know that also. Well, you're cansada because you're a girl. So it's an A. Oh. Yeah. Right conjugation. Yeah. Yes. I suck. Right. Yeah, that's good. I did eight years of Spanish. That's as much as I got. There you go. I'm sure you did very well. <laughs> I was funny, but I couldn't do jokes in Spanish. So, so what was your first assignment in the FBI then? Well, I asked the FBI to please send me back to California, given you know that I had never really left the state. And they, um, they were very kind to send me to Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> That's close. Oh, no, boo. I spent six and a half years in Tucson, Arizona, which I really actually enjoyed. I, the Sonoran Desert was uh, it's a beauty that's very unique. And I, I had a really good time there and met a lot of really good people and did a lot of really good work over there. Yeah, you worked with drugs, right? It was all narcotic trafficking, yes. So it was all border. <laughs> that's a big, uh, I'm sure that's a big problem there. Huge problem. You know, I mean, you're right on the border. Nogales is right there. So we did, wow. we did a lot of work there. And I worked in uh, Hermosillo, Mexico for a little while, mm-hmm. wow. which was a lot of fun. So, you know, that was my first assignment in the FBI. Now, I, when I met you too, I asked you about 9-11. And didn't you say that you were part of the team that helped with like the phone calls that for the people in Germany that didn't make it on the airplanes? Yeah, no. So what it was, was after Tucson, I ended up going to Puerto Rico for three years. Wow. And then after Puerto Rico... I took a promotion and went back to FBI headquarters because you, in order to move up in the FBI, you have to go to Washington. You have to keep going back. To oh, gotcha. So I went to Washington, but I, I spent a year in NSA and I became a bit of a communications expert. I didn't know that. Yeah. When 9-11 occurred, they brought me back to the building and myself and you know numerous other agents and analysts were working the communications aspect of the 19 hijackers. So that means what what communication methodology did they use during their two years here to be able to execute, you know, the you know the events that they did on 9/11? So that's that's in a bit what I did. So I became a bit of an expert in that. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Where were you on 9/11? Uh, I was actually at a Department of Defense site off Route 50 in Virginia. It's in Virginia, and uh, they actually closed it down. Wow. They didn't know what was going on, so they literally they closed it down. You couldn't leave till like after five, I think it was, when they determined that. You know, there wasn't a threat to the actual city of D.C. So it was, uh, you know, I, I thought that in my lifetime, I'm 54, that would be the only sort of event in my life that I would, that would be life changing. Right. Uh, from the world's perspective. Right. And now living through this pandemic, I'm going through two now. That is so true. So what got you to Houston then? And in Houston, your job with the FBI was, what was your title? I was an assistant special agent in charge. And what does that mean besides sounding super cool? That, that's a, that's a, a, a number two. So the, the offices are run by a, a special agent in charge who would be a number one. He or she has assistant special agents in charge, maybe three or four, depending on the size of the office. Then those individuals run different branches or silos to call them that. And they each manage mid-level managers, you know, and those mid-level managers have groups and components made up of agents, analysts, other law enforcement agencies, and they were particular violations. So if like you think of like this enormous drawing on a wall, I was on top of 
you know, maybe 12 boxes. Gotcha. And each box was run by a mid-level supervisor. So I, I did the intelligence side after 9-11 for many years. And then I ended my career the last four years on the criminal side, which means that I had responsibility for, you know, gangs and human trafficking and drugs and public corruption and, you know, crimes against children. It's crazy. Yeah. I know. I saw a video of you and you were so serious. And I'm like, Carlos is serious? I'm like, God, all we did was laugh and drink. And I remember you were like, you're like, I don't really like email. I don't really like calendars. I'm like, wait, you work for the FBI? What made you decide to go into that, into Houston? Was that because you got married? No, the Houston was a, was a, was a promotion. Oh. Like I said, you, have, you bounce from Washington to the field, what they call it. And this was a very unique opportunity that presented itself in Houston. So I, um, you know, I went to Houston and a year later, I, you know, I met my wife. Right, who you're not supposed to date, right? The, well, your wife who worked under you, right? As long as she's not one of those boxes underneath oh, you. Oh, I didn't right. know that. So she was not directly, oh, so you can date people that are in other boxes. There you go. Gotcha. So you yeah. saw her and you said, that black outfit looks different than the rest. I said, those blue eyes look different there than you the go. rest. Oh, that's true. And you guys have been married how long? Uh, 16 years. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. And your son is how old then? He's 13. Still cute, yeah. still fun. He's still cute. Everything is basketball. Everything is sports. 24-7. He's beaten the heck out of me lately because he's getting bigger and stronger <laughs> and he's just throwing me around. And it's getting it's getting exhausting. Yes. I do remember that one of the things you said about Houston, which I've never been to, was you guys went through... Harvey. You said Houston is like a small town, big town. And now Coulter, he grew up in Texas. Okay. Yeah. Well, sort of, sort of both um, California and Texas, but I was born in a Houston suburb. My dad's back in Fort Worth. What suburb were you born in? I was born in Spring. Oh, that's very close to where I live. Are you in the woodlands? I live in Cypress. Cypress? Yeah. So it's a lot of trees is what I'm getting. Yep. We got wood, we got spring, we got Cypress. Somebody was like, oh, we got this. We got we got trees. <laughs> I mean, Houston Houston is definitely um, Humid? different topography <laughs> than a lot of other parts of Texas, for sure. Like each major city sort of has its own, it, its own climate almost like Houston's more. Yeah. Like you said, like woodsy, like, especially when you, when you go to that part of Texas. Okay. Side note, I see behind you, you have your FBI badge up there, right? And what are the gold, what are the things on next to it? One is the badge. And then one is you get one gold symbol for each of the 10 years. Oh, So I was in 25. So I got two. Wow. Oh my gosh. Did you ever just yeah. pull it out and go, I'm Carlos with the FBI. I want a seat at the restaurant. You know what they call that in the FBI? They call that more roast beef. <laughs> yeah, there's a story that an agent in New York once went to get a pastrami sandwich or a roast beef sandwich somewhere at some deli, and they didn't give him enough meat. And he pulled out his badge and said, more roast beef, please. I'm with the FBI. No way. Every time an agent pulls their badge in that capacity, they call it, you know, more roast beef. What do you think the hardest thing was in your job at the FBI? The hardest thing was, you know... For, for 25 years, having sworn, you know, your right hand and sworn to obey the laws and the Constitution and every five years getting reinvestigated is that you lived in a glass bowl. You could do nothing wrong. You could make no mistakes. You know, if you lied, you were fired. If you made mistakes, you were administratively, you know, this. You could not make any mistakes. So, you know, living for 25 years in an environment where you couldn't make, make many mistakes was difficult, but it's what you sign up for, right? And then also, you know, and, and the difficulty of also, you know, the responsibility of always being armed. Yeah. And knowing that, you know, you would have to respond yeah. Yeah. if something were to happen. So, you know, for, for 25 years, I carried a weapon around unless I was 
on an international trip, always. So there was always that sense of always having to be aware, always having to be look around, always having to know that you might have to, at some point, doing just going to the supermarket, you might have to, you know, mitigate a threat. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. Now, did you have, uh, they all carry the same kind of gun? We all carry the same kind of gun, yes. Now, you can also carry a, you know, smaller weapon, and you have to get that approved and qualify with it and so forth, and the FBI approves you carrying it. So I, I carried a baby you know, what's called a baby Glock in my, in my ankle. Oh. And I carried that. So you could like, seriously, you could be that cool guy that like whips out and bends over and goes like that. I was that guy. Yes. But I never had to do that. And that, but yes, wow. I was always ready. I'm way more impressed by you right now. That's very, very cool. At 54. I mean, come on now, before we talked in the last couple of months, you got COVID. I did. I did get COVID. I have no idea how I got it. We, you know, because we obviously were very careful and you're always wearing a mask. You're just going to the store. You're not trying to do these things. We're not one of these non-believers. We believe that it's serious and we're always very careful, but I got it. I got it bad. I didn't have to go to the hospital, but I was out for two weeks. My wife tested positive. She was asymptomatic and the 13 year old was showed no symptoms. So we didn't even have to test him because we pulled him out of school and he had just started school. So it wasn't that he went to school and brought it back. So I had a very high fever for two and a half days, about 102 and a half going through, you know, t-shirt after t-shirt at night. And then it cooled down for like a day or two. And I thought it was over. And then I got this really, really, really bad. Yes. Congestion, sneezing, head cold that would just not leave me for about eight days after that. Wow. And then I lost my taste and smell for about two weeks. Oh, God. Oh, so it has come back. It ha oh, yes. It came back after two weeks for me. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The weirdness of it is the fact that my wife tested positive and she had no symptoms. And I was upstairs. So she was super empathetic, oh, right? So we, we were shocked. Yeah, she was. So, of course, she was. You know, I was isolated upstairs <laughs> and the food would be brought to me to the stairs. She had her N95. It was all very romantic. And that's how, by the way, yes, that, by the way, she turned 50 during this time. So oh, this was, I turned 50 right this before. Was, Thank this, God. Well, this was right before. So she woke up on her 50th birthday and the gift I gave her was COVID. Oh, you're so romantic. Yeah. That's the Spanish in you, right? I, it's, I try to do things that she'll never forget. <laughs> I love that. I love that. What did, did you have to go to the doctor or anything like that? Or they just told you? To yeah. So we, we did a virtual appointment that I woke up on a Thursday with 102. We did a virtual appointment by noon uh, with him. And I mean, all he had to tell me was that, you know, they're not seeing the flu going around at the time because it was, I think it was back in um, August, September, early September. So right that right. Labor Day weekend, I think it was, or Memorial Day, one of the two. And, um, and so... <laughs> I was getting confused. Yeah, so, so we did a virtual with him and he said, yeah, the flu's not going around. We were tested that afternoon. The test took a while. He sent it to a lab. So we didn't get the test back for like three, four days. Um, but I knew it. I knew that it was because there's no flu. And I knew when it was after the first two days of the high fever, when I was able to go downstairs to the back patio and have coffee, because you don't lose your taste or smell that quickly. So it, that, that came after. So I was in the back patio and then I'd walk back up the stairs and I was a little winded. And that's not normal because um, I, you know, I, I try to be in good shape. So those two things I knew that I had it. Now I was shocked when my wife tested positive. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can imagine that. And your older kids, are they, aren't they both in DC area? Yes. I have a 24 and a 22. They're both in DC. They work in, they went to school and both work in Washington, DC. Yeah. And they're doing, they didn't get COVID and they're doing okay. They didn't get COVID, you know, Washington, DC and Virginia, they, in Maryland, they, they went sort of hyper careful on all this. So um, and they were very hyper careful. So they know they both have not gotten it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Wow. So when did you retire from the FBI and what do they do for you when you retire? Did they just give you this plaque or do you have like a ceremony? Well, I, I retired four years ago when I turned 50. So after 25 years of service or you turn 50, you can have 20 years or turn 50 and retire or you have to wait till you're 50. Oh, you can't, you can't work longer? You can work up to 57. Oh, they figure at 57, your brain doesn't work anymore. I mean, is that what they basically Well, think? it's. I think it's more than the brain, it's the physical. Oh, yeah, you can't do that. You can't do the karate chops yeah. and all those things. That you do. <laughs> I mean, now I have to say this. Do you ever watch FBI shows? Because I do. I watch all the murders and the airplane crashes, of course. And do you watch them and go, this is just bullshit. Like, what a joke. <laughs> I don't I don't watch the FBI ones. I like the cold case ones, the forensic files. I oh, like the, yes. The local police and how they, yes. you know, solve some of these. And obviously- the role the FBI has played in D with DNA and yes. creating the, you know, APHIS and the national databases and all that. I think they had the right role because now DNA mm -hmm. is so powerful, right? There's a show, there's a show on Netflix that came out that was supposed to be like the Tiger King. Did you watch the Tiger King thing? I watched a couple of episodes, but then <laughs> I, just, I just couldn't handle it. You just couldn't, right? You just couldn't. So there's another one that came out. It was on McDonald's, right? I think I texted I saw, you. This. Yes, I saw that. Yes. One, yes. And they, they had this FBI guy and he was like trying to be all cool. And I was like, who the hell are you? But it, they were trying to be like the Tiger King, but it was the FBI guys that basically sat around and said, why are all these people winning and all live in this one town for uh, for McDonald's? And didn't you say you had heard about it while you were in the FBI? Yeah, I had heard about the case, but it got drowned out with 9-11. Because I think oh. the announcement of the case happened right before it or after it. So it, it just became, you know, sort of got dissolved in that. It's very entertaining. Yes. Uh, especially how they fool the people. I found that. Oh, my gosh. Really so impressive. Good. Yeah, it was it was very good. Yeah, the guy goes into the bathroom and, you know, switches things out. That's like Gary Condit. He also got lost during the whole 9-11 thing. I mean, he I, I just got told, by the way, that he was not guilty. I can't believe that, but whatever. But yeah, no, that's uh, fascinating. So do you think as the public, we have a honest idea of what it is like to be an FBI agent? Or do you think that we have a false idea of what it's like to be an FBI agent? Yeah, I think probably it's- Probably a lot of paperwork. <laughs> yeah, it's more, it's more along the lines of false. I think people have a Hollywood idea of that. Exactly, yeah, Hollywood. Yeah, idea to be an FBI agent. So people, you know, especially women, they have no idea that it's a career for women too. And And- that and then the, the fact that the FBI has so many different roles. Everybody thinks of, you know, Jodie Foster or they think of FBI agents, but there's analysts, there's support. You know, the FBI has 38,000 employees and there's only 12,000 of those are agents. So they have a, a huge, you know, kind of core of people that allow the agents to do these jobs and support them. So a lot of people don't have any idea about that. That's so cool. I always wanted to work. There's a there's a huge office here. And when I drive by it, it's on 7th Street and uh, Deer Valley. And then they have these huge blockades. So like you can't drive in like and if you want to go in the wrong way, you're going to destroy your car. And I'm like, what's going on in there? It's for the FBI. They have an FBI building. They there. do. There's a big one here. It's on 7th Street and Deer Valley. I'm always like, what are they doing in there? Who are they talking about? Who's the next thing that I don't know about that I'm going to have to follow up on and find out about. Who are they listening to? Yes. Oh yeah. So, so with that being said, every person I know, except myself, everyone I know, I don't know, maybe culture, you don't do this, puts tape over their video thing on their computer. Do you do that? I mean, that's to protect your children from very sick people out there. So I highly recommend that. If, if you have kids that are that are, you know, I'd recommend that, but I think it's okay. So someone could be watching me. Well, not from the, not from the government, they're not. 
Oh, you don't think so, huh? No, I know so. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Unless you're doing something illicit. <laughs> I do. I mean, I, I work with travel all day. It's so funny because I met with lawyers this week for travel. And after a while, I was like, oh my God, you like have ruined me. Like I cry in my sleep. They're like, you're going to get sued for this. You're going to get sued for this. After a while, I was like, I get you want me to buy your product. But I was like, God, I mean, it was like the sales pitch from hell. He's like, they're going to sue you if you don't have this. And after a while, I was like, okay, I'm out. I'm out. Thanks. That was awesome. I'm so glad I'm selling travel. Okay. So you retire. How long did you not work for? Or did you talk to your brother right away about starting this business? We had been discussing it. We had been discussing the idea uh, behind the business and the possibility of starting this company and what it would be like and who we could go get and how the structure would be. So we, we had been discussing it. Are you allowed to tell us more about the this business? Yeah, this is, yeah, of course. I mean, the business, once I retired, I can tell you. And so the business was very was very straightforward. During my time in the FBI, I worked overseas in Spain, Argentina, Mexico, and Brazil for the FBI. And the role of the FBI, they have representatives, agents, and support staff in about 75 countries all over the world. And their function is one strictly of liaison because the the US government has no authority to investigate any criminal matter in any country in the rest of the world. They have no authority. So what happens is that because we establish embassies and we put these FBI legal attaches, they're called, in these posts, we then begin to develop relationships with law enforcement entities in those countries. We understand their laws. We understand you know, how the military works, how law enforcement works. We, you know, we develop relationships and bridges. We train them. We you know, sort of bring our resources to bear to help their law enforcement entities. And why do we do that? Okay, so here's a question. If I go get murdered in Mexico. If like this weekend you go and get murdered in Mexico, Susan, okay. (laughs) Yeah, so if I go get murdered this weekend in Mexico, what will my husband, what would he do? Your husband, what would happen is, that's the reason why the relationships in those positions are out there. So hopefully, and I would think in Mexico, the answer is yes, they have a very good relationship between the embassy and all those people working in Mexico to include the FBI agents. They would have relationships with the Mexican law enforcement and hopefully the Mexican law enforcement entities in whatever town you get murdered in, right, would ask. It better be a beach town. That's all I'm saying. If I'm getting murdered, I better be at a four seasons on the fucking beach. Exactly. And so when your body floats back up from the the shore (laughs) and you are found. Yes. In my hot bikini. Then what would happen is that the Mexican law enforcement agencies would ask the FBI for assistance. And that's why oh, those positions okay. exist. And then we can bring the resources of the FBI to assist the host country in conducting the investigation of how you got drunk, <laughs> met a bunch of strangers, went out on a boat, what? and decided to show them that you could swim at two in the morning. And they, you know, you jumped off. So you weren't really what? murdered. I'm you a just great drowned. swimmer. All I know is that if you get murdered, please cry. Cry for me. And I want a big ass party. Because Dan won't do that. He'll be so in grief, you know? He'll be like, oh, she's dead. But it, but everyone else can throw me a party. Coulter, you're in charge of this as my co-host. Okay. In charge of a big-ass party. Deal. Yes, and I want lots of great music and, you know, stuff like that. So you're talking to your brother about this and the, all these people. So your brother's name again, remind me. Miguel. Miguel, that's right. So the concept is very, is very simple. 
A lot of these folks that have worked in these countries for five years or eight, you know, depending on the term, five being the max, a lot of these folks stay in those countries. They get jobs with other companies. They fall in love with a, with a local person. They maybe realize that their retirement savings go, you know, a long way in that country as opposed to back in the States. They don't, they want to stay in that country. So the concept was very simple. Why don't we find these folks in the countries that they've stayed in and why don't we offer them as a resource for American travelers traveling to these countries as just a safety and security resource that they can have prior to their trip abroad. For a very nominal fee, you have access to, you know, uh, Melissa in Italy, and obviously she knows Italy. Obviously she's been there for a long time. She speaks Italian. She knows the embassy. She knows everything there is. And you can feel safer, peace of mind, that you know there's somebody you can reach out to while you're traveling. And that was the concept, you know, of how yes. we sort of brainstormed the the concept of the company. What's the what's the name of the business? Uh, it's called US Traveler Assist. And so for the most part, these are former agents like yourself, retirees. Correct. You created this network of people in various, you know, travel hotspots throughout the world to help assist travelers. So what what are the what are the things that people would need or want you know, from your business? So for example, we had a client who um, was walking out in Barcelona, was walking out with his wife of a very nice, you know, club three in the morning, which, you know, obviously in Barcelona is not really late, you know, so they're, you know, they're hustling, bustling, they walk out and a nice gentleman comes up and he's well-dressed and he goes to shake the hand so that the client puts out his hand and they immediately grab his Rolex. So they immediately, they, there's trick by they just grab the Rolex and pulled it really hard you know, our client fell, they pushed his wife. So all of a sudden, you know, the client didn't know what to do. They didn't know, you know, who do you call? How do you file a police report? Uh, do you call the embassy? You know, uh, you know, they, it's, it's that type of assistance that we can lend very easily uh, because you know who you can reach out to. Well, and if you don't speak the language, that's part of it too. Like I don't speak Spanish, obviously. So if you don't speak that language, you're in a, you're in a total loss. And not only that, but you, you wouldn't know who to call. If I tell you as many times as you go to Mexico and you go to all these places, if I tell you, do you have the number of the, of the, of the, and you know, the U S embassy in, you know, or consulate in Cancun in your phone, can you find it on the internet? You probably could, but you know, you're on the internet in Mexico trying to find it. And in these types of situations where you've been the victim of a crime, you know, your head isn't all where it needs to be and you need somebody to help you. This is one example of where we were able to help the client. He was had somebody he could call. He had somebody to help him file a police report. We were able to put, you know, the the there's actually a database in Spain where you can put the actual serial numbers of all the Rolexes in there in case it pops up at another place. So, yes, so there's a lot of things that that our person knows that a lot of just a, a normal person wouldn't know. And that's how we that's one example. So, so like in in this case like I mean, do they, do they just pay you like a retainer fee? Like they, like, I mean, do you buy like insurance? How, how does that all work? Yeah. So what they do is they subscribe to the service prior to their trip. So somebody finds this either through the marketing or travel conferences, wherever I might be, they find us and they go online and before their trip, they just simply put in the information of their trip, the day they're leaving, the day they're coming back and they, you know, then they're asked to pay it's $20 a day. So you leave for seven days. Unbelievable. It's, it's per person, but you know, you pay your $140. If you're one person, 
And then the moment you sign up, you're introduced to your point of contact. So your point of contact, you know, in, is, is introduced to you. You know their bio, you have their image, you have, their, you know, their photo, you have all their contact information, their telephones, you have all that established contact prior to your trip. And the relationship is based on, and we do a couple of little sort of, you know, uh, risk assessments for each country, something for, you know, the traveler to read, very basic, not very complicated about things to be aware of, top 10 things to just be alert on, that kind of thing. So that's what, that's a little sort of virtual package that a client gets. And then the relationship on how, what the client needs is really based on the client. A lot of clients don't even call us. They know, they feel comfortable, right. they have us where they need us, they don't call. Some clients will call about things that get serious. A lot of clients will call and say, I'm going from city A to city B, is city B okay? Tell me something about city B that I should know right. about. So, but it's a subscription service, and as soon as you come back, you know, it's done. And that's how you pay on the front end. And do you have like a list of services that you that you offer? Or I mean, like, like how do people know what to reach out to you for? They that, that's the conversation. So we don't put a smorgasbord of things out there uh, to say, call us if this happens. What we say is, look, in the event of something serious happening to you that we would consider a red, meaning, you know, you get kidnapped. So then the embassy is that is what every American taxpayer pays for. You have all those resources. There is that yellow area, the gray area, from where your passport is stolen to where you have an incident. We, you know, we say contact with law enforcement. We say, con um, you know, something has been stolen, but you want to contact law enforcement, a legal issue that might come up, things like that. That's where our service comes in. It's, it's, it's only $20 a day. So the expectations are minimal when you're only paying that kind of, you know, fee. Right. So it's not commensurate right. with, oh, my God, I got kidnapped. Save me. There are agencies that will do that. And you will pay, right. you know, accordingly. So that's right. the type, you know, we, we don't put the smorgasbord, but we say legal matters, matters where law enforcement would be involved, um, issues where the embassy might not help you. This is where we come in. Interesting. I think I said to you immediately, um, and I, Mackenzie and I just watched her story was Amanda Knox. And I look at her and I go, if she had had an advocate with her, just someone that could be like, hey, here's what's going to happen. Here's how this works. When you're 18, 19, 20, 25, I mean, whatever, having someone that can help you. Or, you know, I remember you saying, like, if your husband gets drunk, and I think of that a lot with Europe, right? Where you're driving and you get lost and you don't know what's going on. I said to you all over and over, I go, it is the the hard, hard part of selling insurance, which is the same as yours, is people don't want to pay for things they don't need, but when they need it, they need it. So it's, it's, a, it's telling people and reminding them, hey, you need this and it is so inexpensive. And when you need it, you need it. And you will be so glad that you have it. So I think it's, I still am so impressed by it. I, I would love to have something like that when I go get drunk and jump off my boat when I'm in Cancun. I wouldn't do that in the middle of the night because I am a little afraid of dark water. I did watch Jaws get filmed when I was in Martha's Vineyard as a child. So I'm not huge on jumping in the water. But I could see myself getting drunk and jumping in water in the daytime because I'm funny. <laughs> and I think that, you know, the points you brought up are very, very good. But at the end of the day, when somebody's buying trip insurance from you, there's a tangible re there's a tangible return, meaning I'm getting my money back yep. for my tickets, my airfare, my hotel. Yes. There's a tangible in the contingency business, which is what we're selling. It's much different yep. because what you're getting is the feeling that I know there's somebody I can call. So. 
their the return there is they have to yeah. go through a mental process, imagery kind of thinking. Easy to put in front of anybody that's been in the contingency business. Easy, right? Because they go, yeah. 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 But most people go, look, I'll play the numbers, right? Yeah, you know, right. crime doesn't really happen. Your trial, I'm going to go to this beautiful four seasons and this. It's not going to happen. You know, I'm not going to spend the money. So this is the the, the complexity of me seeing the yep. world through the lens that I've seen it for all these years, which is something could happen. We need to prepare and others who just right. have different lenses. Right. So, you know, everybody right. sees the world like, you know, this, my idea, my contingency, my brother, Miguel is a retired wall street guy. So his lenses are, he sees numbers and figures and turns and, you know what I mean? So everybody sees the world in, in through a different lens. Yeah. I, I totally see that. And, and when you're uncomfortable, you don't make rational decisions. And that's the hardest part. When you're uncomfortable and there's stress and there's stuff going on, you don't make rational decisions. And then you're in a place where they don't speak your language. You don't know where you're going. It can be very uncomfortable. So I, I as I've said, since I met you, I, th- I totally believe in what you guys do. I think that people just don't understand it. And I don't think people understand the value of what they get. Now you started with going through colleges, right? For parents who like myself would have said, hey, uh, Mackenzie, go study abroad. <laughs> Mackenzie's like, really? Um, but go study abroad. And then we would have the security of saying, oh, well, now we know that you have somebody with you exactly. in case something happens. Yeah, we started, in that, yeah. we started in that space and we had some students actually from Texas A&M that subscribe, well, their parents subscribe them. But it also got complicated because, you know, a lot of parents think the university handles a lot of that. What they don't know is the kids wow. are 18 and the kids are signing a waiver uh, that the university is not liable for anything. But that gets lost, right? Your kids in college, they're independent, they're doing this, they want to go abroad. And you're just, you know, you're writing the checks and you're, okay, okay, just be careful. Oh, but the, you know, the university will handle that. Great. So, you know, there became the complexity of trying to explain to parents that, you know, you, you, this is an added layer of comfort that you should have. But a lot of parents think, well, the university is there. So that, that was a complicated space. Some universities are really good at it. Others are less good at it. Some risk management yeah you know, they do risk management really well. Some do it not as well. But at the end of the day, it became the kids don't care because the kids are just having a good time. They're invincible, yeah. right? I've had, you know, I, my, my daughter went abroad, never heard from her, right? So that that's, you know, that's what happens. She's like, I just want money, dad, thanks. And that's what happens. So, you know, invincibility is one thing. So that's when we expanded the market to, you know, just all travelers because it, it you know, it, it just became very, it was, you know, before I met you, Susan, I spent my first year, or half about eight months in that academic space. And that was very interesting. So you guys met at a conference for travel advisors or, or for the travel industry. And then to, to get get us to that point. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I was a supplier. I was supplying a, a service. And you were a supplier. Susan was the individual who I was supplying the service to. So there's this very large you know, conference we went to, one of the most well-known ones. Uh, in Fort Lauderdale. And I went through the process of speed dating for six minutes and putting my product in front of, you know, uh, a bunch of travel agents, which all happened to be women. So it was a very good market. (laughs) 
right? Because it was, was funny because his name was on there. I was like, because your old name was what? So, I can't even say it. Salus? It was Salus Security Services. Yeah. And right? I was like, well, who the hell is this? And I didn't even look, but you know, you get six minutes, right? And you have, you have like 60 people, but we met that night and then we sat on the bus cause you had a, like a Greyhound, right? Back to the yes. hotel we're staying at. And I'm like, oh my God, we started the first airplane crash we started talking about was the value jet that went into the Everglades in Florida, which is awesome before, I've said this before, I made all of my kids watch all these airplane disasters right before they flew. But he was like, oh yeah. And then we would text each other when we got home, like, hey, did you watch this one? I was like, oh my gosh, be still my heart. I found my people. But we seriously, like every event, so you have your speed dating, you have lunch, you have dinner. You'd go to like, we went to Royal Caribbean's like uh, where they showed dancing. And, but everywhere we went, we just hung out and it was just, we had a blast. And Carlos is the ultimate gentleman. He would get me my drinks. <laughs> but it was fascinating because I love being around very intelligent people, obviously. And I like people that are genuine and have a lot of energy. Well, so that you, you, were you a found man, the yeah, energy. You, <laughs> right. My husband moved his office next to me about a week ago. And every day he shuts the door and puts his iPods on. He's like, maybe this wasn't a good idea. Ding, ding, ding. So, but you said you have a great story about something that went amiss while you were traveling. The craziest story ever, I was born and raised in Santa Barbara, which is a town in California. But my parents, we spent every summer in Spain. So we would fly from Los Angeles to Madrid for the summer. And my parents were, you know, my father was a professor. So, I mean, it's not like we were well off, but, you know, there were expenses associated and it was expensive to fly everybody. So at that time, back in the day, um, they had these charter airlines that would fly um, you know, and do this trip, LA Madrid. And the airline was called Spantax. That's how, the, I mean, it's called, Oh my God, I've never yeah. heard that. And literally one. It sounds like a maxi one pad. Time, yeah, it's, it was crazy. <laughs> one time it was, we, my family never all traveled together. So it would be me, my brother and my mom. And we arrived and literally they, they, they put us all in the, you know, the bus would go to the tarmac and they literally said that you had to run and get your seat. And if you didn't get a seat, you were not on this charter flight. What? No, no it's serious. This was so long ago. I was, I was maybe a teenager, maybe 13. And I remember just- Oh my God, so run and grab. grab. It was run and grab. This run was at LAX? It was, what? This was at LAX? This was at LAX, Spantax Airline. No way! And you ran and got your seat. I swear. This what, was, what happened if you didn't make it? You didn't make it. You were not on the plane. You grabbed your bag and you left from the tarmac. It took you out. Oh, okay? my God. Mind you, this is, I'm 54. So do the math. This is how many years ago. Oh and that was one of the wildest stories that I still remember, just running to get a seat. Um and my brother and I just running and saving one for my mom. It was just crazy. But that's one of the wildest ones that I still, and it's clearly traumatized me for life. Did they like intentionally oh oversell? Like it, it was a charter flight. I didn't have anything to do with the payment or anything like that. I did not understand what was going on. All I remember saying is that all these people were running to the plane and my mother saying, grab the seats. That's all I needed to, that's all I needed to hear. I have no idea what happened. So were you pretty fast then? I mean, like, thank God that. They, were you pretty fast? I mean, did, I were you a great runner? Okay. Yeah, I was a great runner. My brother and I went up there. We got the seats, not a problem. 
And but it was just one of the wildest scenes because you know the, you're running shove, to the you're running to the front and the back of the plane and you're just running and then once you get in you know the key was you know getting to that stairway the quickest possible but right that is that's oh a God. traumatizing story that I'll never forget on the on the runway at LAX Spantax oh Airlines. So, can you yeah. imagine? I've never even heard of that airline. Yeah. That is hilarious. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that oh sometimes boarding Southwest, just because I want to make sure I get like a window <laughs> or an aisle. I sort of like my heart beats fast, but I can't imagine if they were like, well, if you don't get a seat, you're off. Sorry. Right. I can't imagine that. On the way to Madrid, not like I, you're on your way to San Francisco or something. Yeah. Right? No. Oh my God. That's what, well, like 13 hours. There goes hours your whole summer if you don't make it. I mean, right. there's a long way. It's a long flight. Is it? Yeah, Carlos, don't worry, honey. Just keep going. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so we have a we have a quiz, and it's going to be about FBI trivia, of course. And you, Carlos no, and I are and on you, a team. You, you God, are I on better team. pull my weight. This to... is going to be tough. <laughs> I know. Could it be about FBI movie trivia? I had I'd stand a chance at that. <laughs> I know. I'll I'm do my sure. best. So okay, okay. So we're going to ask a couple questions. You guys get to talk together and then, you know, we tally okay. as we go. So, okay. Um, number one, did the FBI once spend two years investigating a song? That's, that's the whole question. Correct. I mean, I'm going to say that. I think it's possible for copyright stuff and framed as a song that could be invested copyright investigations as to, you know, so I don't know if they spent two years investigating an actual song, but I don't know. What do you think? You have to say, you have to say yes or no. I know, but I'm asking my, I'm asking my, I, I, wish, I wish there was a little more details, <laughs> like okay. a song no, because it, you know, so no, that would give it away. uncovered a, a mystery Culver or something like that. I feel like there's more that to it. Do you think that's something that FBI could possibly do? Like, come on, would they actually investigate this? Do we want our fucking dollars going towards them investigating a song i would say yeah i'd say that's possible i say what do you think i say yes it's possible as well you are correct they investigated the song louis louis because parents had written the government saying it contained pornographic language wow and there was a 120 page report and they concluded it was unintelligible at any speed <laughs> Can you imagine the analyst on that assigned to that? I mean, like, my God, you're just right, right in a wow. book on a song. Well, nice, nice, nice job, Coulter. <laughs> hey, teamwork, oh man. Well, let's. Did the FBI once investigate ESP, which is called extrasensory perception? Okay, I just wanted to make sure it wasn't ESPN there for a second. <laughs> uh, yes, I know. Did they investigate ESP? Mm. No. I don't think so. No. You are incorrect. What? In the 1960s, they gave, oh. they looked. I'm telling you, this is trivia. Sorry, I didn't know we were talking about when Hoover was alive. Yeah, well, uh, then now that's hey, possible. Hoover started the FBI, right? Or was he just the first? He didn't start. The it. longest tenured. Yeah. Yes. I wasn't yeah, going to ask that question. That was one of my questions was, is there a tenure? And then I was How like. was he there? Uh, he was there from 22, uh, from 1917 to 22. So for 48 years. Yeah. If you had said 1960s, I probably would have said yes. 62% of his life. 
And after that, they are limited to 10 years, which is incorrect, I just got told. But I guess it's 10 years and then 10 years. No, it's a 10-year term. Ah, gotcha. So he didn't have a term. He just went as long as he wanted. Yes. Okay. Uh, Number three, people are only removed from the most wanted list if they are captured, die, or if charges against them are dropped. Correct. Okay. Coulter, that's an easy one. Whatever. I shouldn't have asked that one. I don't like losing. Does the FBI have its own special lingo? I don't know, but I would assume so. I would say yes. I mean, roast beef, right? Yeah, I guess that kind of gave it away. Okay, so here's um, here's what they said. You are correct. Okay, so what is a boost car? What's a what? <laughs> a what? Okay, what's an unsub? An unsub is somebody who you don't know who they are. Okay, what's a brick agent? A brick agent is a brand new agent. They say they're called investigator who works the streets. Right, a brick agent. So, eh, that is incorrect. Yeah, it's a brick agent, <laughs> but they, it's the new agents. They call them brick agents. They're in the street. A Betty, Betty Bureau? Betty Bureau is one of these old people that work at the Bureau for a very long time. Um, that says that it refers to a female support employee. Right, the people that work. Who has worked there for, her, for a yes. very long time. Yes. Well, that's my last of my questions. So it seems like we did pretty good. Yeah, you did. You guys got three and I got one. So whatever. I guess you know your job. I mean, I'll give you that. So is there anything you miss about being at the FBI? Uh, no. <laughs> did, did the FBI uh, headquarters, did it have a good cafeteria? I, I mean. Ooh, good question. It, that's a great question. Um, it got better over time. But when I was there, no. So when I was a kid, I thought the FBI was a job that you had to be. Um, I thought the FBI was like they had to come to you and they had to like, is it still where you could go to like a job fair and go get a job with them? Yes. Wow. I mean, I, I, I missed a bus. <laughs> That's right. Right. You, you six foot nine person missed the bus. Hey, I would totally yeah. miss the bus for all that because, you know, I'm in menopause and I mean, God, I'll do anything for air conditioning. I would join the FBI. <laughs> but here's the deal. Do I have to cut all my hair off if I join the FBI? No. You can have a ponytail. You can have a ponytail. Yep. Do most of the people that go to the FBI, are they from military or are they like no. missing the bus people? No, no. There's, there is, there is, that's one of the things also another misnomer a la Hollywood is that the people yeah. from the FBI, people that join the FBI, even within the agent ranks, all kinds of people. Former police officers in my class, to give you an example, we had former military folks from the first Iraqi war. We had um, uh, we had a uh, an architect. We had a school teacher. We had a nuclear scientist. We had a former police wow. officer. We had, you know, uh, some accountants, a couple lawyers. So it was just a, a hodgepodge. I'm sure you met people that were in there and you're like, there's no way in hell they should be in the FBI. Right. They shouldn't be holding a gun. I. Uh, There had to be that one. No. I never in 25 years, anybody that held a gun, I never said that to my, never said that. Now, do you, you don't carry a gun now, but you still have a gun? Yes, correct. It's because your hot wife carries a gun and she'll take care of you. She, yes, she will cover. That means that she's in better shape than you. Always. Always. You, that's perfect. That's the best way to end it. (sighs) always you're you're a joy it's so good to see your face i'm so glad to see you we're gonna seriously have to come out when basketball actually starts and it's actually gonna be playing in houston and see you culture you have any more questions yeah um i guess i guess one more was i just wondered about what it seems like to to be an fbi agent you, you have to be both mentally and physically fit so like was there one thing about 
you know, when you were first joining the FBI, because this seems like a fascinating career, was there something, you know, that was difficult about the testing or something that was difficult about, you know, the physical requirements that you remember specifically? I remember that it was extremely cold at Quantico in November, December, and January and February. Did you have to swim? No, but it's just cold. I mean, remember, I'm from Santa Barbara. So you're now you're taking me, oh, you're taking me to boy. Virginia, and it was extremely yeah. cold. I would say the answer, Coulter, and it's a good question, is no, I, there were, you know, I think Quantico does a nice job of training you and giving you an understanding. But the FBI job is probably like the majority of jobs. You learn once you get out in the field. You learn it, right? You're, you're, you are a brick agent and you're on the streets and that's how you learn the job. So, you know, there, there's always challenges to doing your first arrest or doing your first surveillance or doing your first interview or doing your first, you know, testifying for the first time. So there is where wow. there's a lot of learning things. But at Quantico, they do a nice job in four months to just sort of prepare you, frame you out and send you out. But then you spend the rest of your career learning. Yeah. Did you sit in a van and um, stake out? Many times. No way, you did? Many. So some of the Hollywood's true. Some wow. of Many, many times that I sit in a van. And what do you guys do while you're there? Just sit? We sit and watch uh, drug traffickers deliver money to each other and then we follow it. But while they're not doing that, what do you do while you're waiting? You're sitting in the van, waiting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not much more than that. You're like playing cards? In, this was back in 1990, 91. So, you know, we didn't have... Yeah, there's no... You have, have no Wi-Fi. We didn't have Wi-Fi. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have Google. We didn't have anything. You're just staring at each other going, hi, John. Yeah. Thanks for fixing the air... Your wife's still okay? Thanks for fixing the air conditioning. It's 115 out here. Right. Oh, that's true. You're in Tucson. Right. Oh, that's awful. Uh, oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you for taking care of my state. Right. Backstage Travel Podcast is hosted by Susan Green and Coulter Fleming. Editing, producing, and managing by Mackenzie Green. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Visit our Facebook page and send us your travel stories at info at backstagetravelpodcast.com. Susan and her team at Susan's Travel Services have a passion for what they do and want to get you to your dream destination. They're so dedicated to giving you the experience of a lifetime that they'll help you at no cost. To learn more, find them online at Susan's Travel services.com.